Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Tafik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of Roots of the Spirit podcast. It's been a minute since you've heard from me, but that's for a very good reason. That's the only reason why I would let so much time go by in between podcasts, because this podcast has become my love, my heart, my passion. I am always constantly working to try to bring you another amazing guest and have another amazing conversation to benefit the mission of the podcast, which is to have honest conversations about identity, the social construct, race, racism, and social justice. The reason why it's been a minute since you heard from me is because just about a week and a half ago, I returned from my very first international Roots of the Spirit cultural experience where I led a group trip to Havana, Cuba. This is my second trip to Cuba, but this time was incredibly special. First, because it was my first international Roots of the Spirit cultural experience, but also four of the people who signed up to take the trip, who we thoroughly enjoyed together, our very close family friends, some of whom were already acquainted, as well as my awesome brother Isaiah and my queen mother, Minnie Jean. We had an amazing time. We stayed in a privately owned casa and experienced the beauty and vibrancy of the people and the city. We visited historic sites and immersed ourselves in the local culture as much as possible. It was incredible to experience it with my mother through her eyes of great experience and wisdom and just the conversations that ensued after we visited key places that have deep roots. So I'm back. (laughs) As always, I'd be honored if you like my Roots of the Spirit Facebook page. Follow me on Instagram, same name. And please, please, please rate and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Ratings and reviews make all the difference in the world, and I want to be able to reach as many people as possible, so your support definitely helps. And the more support I get from my incredible listeners, the bigger the community we can grow, which will enable us to do larger events and programs and cultural experiences. Right now, we're rounding the bend on the Roots of the Spirit book club, which we've been reading How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. We meet virtually on a weekly basis, and the discussions have been so incredibly fruitful. Kendi really challenges us to reconsider how we've been framing racism and encourages us to narrow in on it and focus on tangible racist and anti-racist policies, power, and ideas. It's just a hearty book and delves deep into the trenches of racism, white supremacy, and how we can play a role in striving to be anti-racist because it is definitely a lifelong commitment. So stay tuned because this was a pilot program and it was incredibly successful in my mind and I've already had a couple requests to consider reading another book together very soon. So stay tuned on that. All right, well, that's it for updates. And now allow me to introduce you to today's guest. Brad Marsden is from the Gitsagukla Reserve within the Gitsan Nation in Northern British Columbia. He is a life coach, residential school counselor, and facilitator. He graduated from a wellness counselor program in 2008 and has been trained in safe talk as well as suicide intervention at the Crisis Center of British Columbia. As Brad describes, 
He is an intergenerational survivor of the residential school, as he was raised by his grandparents who went there. Although he never attended the school himself, he was raised by the same beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors that his primary caregivers and community had to experience in the residential school. All of his important early childhood development was greatly influenced by their experience in those schools. To quote Brad, it is my goal to help my people move forward in their lives by helping them and society become more accurately aware of the history of the residential school and the effects that it had and still has on our communities today, and more importantly, our children, end quote. Brad is the founder of his own workshop that he conducts with service providers and educators and so many other different people in Canada and the United States called Fire Across the Land, Impacts of Residential School and Colonization Workshop, a powerful experiential workshop to help educate non-Native service providers of the collective trauma that has impacted Native people throughout Canada's history. Although Brad will be providing a description of residential schools, I wanted to provide a quick overview. I am reading from a page on University of British Columbia's website to give you a quick overview of residential schools. The term residential schools refers to an extensive school system set up by the Canadian government and administered by churches that had the nominal objective of educating Aboriginal children, but also the more damaging and equally explicit objectives of indoctrinating them into Euro-Canadian and Christian ways of living and assimilating them into mainstream Canadian society. The residential school system operated from the 1800s into the closing decades of the 20th century. The system forcibly separated children from their families for extended periods of time and forbade them to acknowledge their Aboriginal heritage and culture, or to speak their own languages. Children were severely punished if these, among other strict rules, were broken. Former students of residential schools have spoken of horrendous abuse at the hands of residential school staff, physical, sexual, emotional, and psychological. Residential schools provided Aboriginal students with an inferior education, often only up to grade five, that focused on training for manual labor and agriculture, light industries such as woodworking and domestic work such as laundry and sewing. Residential schools systematically undermined Aboriginal culture across Canada and disrupted families for generations, severing the ties through which Aboriginal culture is taught and sustained and contributing to a general loss of language and culture. Because they were removed from their families, many students grew up without experiencing a nurturing family life and without the knowledge and skills to raise their own families. The devastating effects of the residential schools are far-reaching and continue to have significant impact on Aboriginal communities. Because the government's and the church's intent was to eradicate all aspects of Aboriginal culture in these young people and interrupt its transmission from one generation to the next, the residential school system is commonly considered a form of cultural genocide. From the 1990s onward, the government and the churches involved, Anglican, Presbyterian, United, and Roman Catholic, began to acknowledge their responsibility for an education scheme that was specifically designed to, quote, kill the Indian in the child, end quote. On June 11, 2008, the Canadian government issued a formal apology in Parliament for the damage done by the residential school system. In spite of this and other apologies, however, the effects remain. The content and discussion in this podcast will necessarily engage with the truth about residential schools in Canada and the United States, racism, and experiences of emotional, sexual abuse, and physical trauma.
My intention is to provide a platform from which we can engage bravely, empathetically, and thoughtfully with difficult content. It is my pleasure to welcome Brad Marsden to the podcast. Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm so incredibly excited to have you as a guest on my show. Thank you. As you may know, I created Roots of the Spirit podcast as a platform to spark honest conversations about identity, race, racism, and social justice, to galvanize change and uproot racism through storytelling, education, and the arts. When thinking of podcast guests who are doing work that really speak to these values, you came to mind right away. I'm in complete admiration of the work that you do. I think that it's so necessary, so powerful. The stories are so underknown, undertold. And so this is a really wonderful opportunity to help build an informed historical perspective because the work that you're doing is rooted in our history and acknowledging that history and look at the implications, everything that has happened as a result and be able to speak about it and ultimately do healing work around the experiences that we'll dive into much deeper as we go along. I like to inform our podcast listeners on how I became acquainted with my guests. It was a fabulous day while I was working at the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian. And on this occasion, I happened to be at one of our information desks and you came up to the desk. Naturally, I found out you're from British Columbia, Canada. We engaged in a really, really fruitful conversation. You ultimately, through connections and a a fit with the museum's mission, provided such an enriching, groundbreaking workshop that I would love for you to talk about. And we've kept in touch ever since. So do you recall the day that we met at the museum? I do. I was in New York and um, the, way I, the way I approach business is, you know, I wanted to be there and I, I just had a drawing towards the National Museum of the American Indian. And I had full intention of going there to provide a workshop, but I needed to get, uh, you know, I needed to get some sort of connection. And then when I bumped into you, we, we started to had a great conversation. I told you a little bit about what I was doing. And lo and behold, about, I think about a year later, we uh, we did the presentation there. So I remember exactly our uh, our meeting. Just to kick off our conversation, I would like to know where were you born and raised and tell me anything you want to share about your family roots. Okay, I was born in Prince Rupert. That's along the the west coast of uh, British Columbia up in Canada. It's, It's along the west coast. It's about halfway between Alaska and Seattle. I'm from the Gitsan Nation, and within the Gitsan Nation, we have six different Indian reserves. Down in the United States, they call them Indian reservations. Up in Canada, we call them the Indian reserves. And within my nation, the Gitsan Nation, I'm from the Gitsagikla Reserve, but there are also the Gitniar Reserve, where my dad was from. There's a Gitwangach Indian Reserve, the Kispiaks, the Glenval, and the Gitmax Indian Reserve. So that's a little bit of a makeup of my reserve that resided there for the last 10,000 years. You know, 10,000 years is a long time. And, you know, we governed ourselves so efficiently. We had the, the hereditary chiefs. We had, the, you know, we had our own laws. And, you know, so we've been, we've been up there for the last 10,000 years. So um, that's where I'm from. What was it like growing up there? I was born there. I lived with my, my mother and my father for the first year of my life. And uh, the reason why I say the first year of my life is because my father passed away at age uh, when I was one. And 
so I grew up with them and I can just imagine, you know, like everything that this young couple had been through, you know, I didn't realize that my, my father went to residential school. Brad, although at the beginning of the podcast, I gave a broad overview of what a residential school is and the parallel boarding schools in the United States. But can you please explain in your words, what is a residential school? You know, the residential school, to put it in perspective, is what the United States calls the boarding school, right? So as a matter of fact, you know, like the first boarding school in the United States was uh, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And what the Canadian government done was, okay, well, they commissioned this one gentleman to go down and observe what they were doing with the, the Indians down there. And then he came back and uh, he, he, he had his report and he says, you know what, if we want to get rid of the Indian problem up here, this is what they're doing down there. So that's where the residential school idea came in, into play. And the residential school, it was designed to assimilate all of the, the native children to get rid of our culture, to get rid of our ways, to get rid of our language. So, so I had no idea that my father went to residential school. And when we talk about residential school, we talk about historical trauma. For over 150 years in Canada, you know, our families were broken apart. They were mandated by law that every child between the ages of five and 16 had to go to the residential school. So can you imagine, you know, the trauma that must have taken place within that five minute, 10 minute period where the Indian agent and the RCMP were coming to apprehend the children? I, I, I think about the, when I do my workshop, I'm just thinking about that 10 minutes, that brief 10 minutes where the child is getting, you know, ripped apart, crying and wanting, asking for mom, asking for dad. And, you know, in a, in a sense that learned helplessness, that learned powerlessness of the father and the mother, like they want to save their child, but you know, they can't because if they in interfered, they would go to jail, right? So anyways, I, I, I thought about that. And I'm thinking about my father and he passed away about seven years after he left the residential school. And now that I'm learning more and more about myself with the work that I do, I can just imagine, you know, like what was my father's memories that he was trying so hard to run away from, you know, to sort of numb out from that involved alcohol. And, you know, when I think about it, I'm just like, you know what, that little boy, he because 22 years old, that's a pretty young human being and that's when he passed away he got involved in an alcohol related incident and um, unfortunately for whatever reason he suffered some internal bleeding and he did not want to go to the hospital for whatever reason indians don't like to go to the hospital you know when some things some minor injuries could have been prevented and fixed within you know a short period of time he chose not to go and unfortunately two weeks later he was on his way to work in terrace british columbia which is about an hour and a half away from prince Rupert. He was on his way to work and all of a sudden he collapsed in the middle of the driveway. My mom ran out, called the ambulance, they rushed him off to the hospital and within 12 hours he passed away. So I can just imagine, you know, the heartbreak that this young couple had to go through. You know, my mother, they were childhood sweethearts since about eight years old and they finally got married and they were going to turn their lives around and all of a sudden, you know, the, the carpet gets ripped out from underneath her, so to speak. So she said, after the funeral, we tried to go back to Terrace to live, um, to, to create a new life for her children. She said one day her father drove to Terrace from the reserve, started loading up all of our furniture in the back of the truck, and then said, no grandchildren of mine are going to grow up without a father. You guys are coming home to live with us. So that's how I moved to the Indian Reserve up in Canada at age one. 
Now, on the outside looking in, it might look like a good situation. Oh, you know, that's great. You know, the family's stepping up for They're going to look after these three fatherless children and this, uh, this recent young 22-year-old widow, a mother of three. But in my case, because of the residential school, my childhood was not a good childhood, you know, because of what happened to those children in those residential schools. Unfortunately, those behaviors followed them home back to the Indian Reserve long after they left the residential school for good. And, you know, there was a lot of bullying, there was a lot of shaming, all of the abuses we heard about in residential schools, you know, unfortunately, they were brought and remodeled back in our communities. So much needless to say, my childhood was was not a good childhood. And I used to wonder, why isn't anybody sticking up for me? Why isn't my grandfather saying anything? Why is my grandmother saying anything? And by that time, my mom had left, she went to go move on and get on with her life and try to try to try to pick herself back up. And so she left us with the grandparents. And I used to wonder, why isn't anybody sticking up for us and it wasn't until i started to hear about the residential school for the very first time at age 23 you know isn't that isn't that crazy unbelievable to think that all of this trauma that was existent in this community for the last 100 plus years and nobody ever ever talked about it i listened to an interview with you online and when you were speaking about your experience as a young person you described the fact that you felt something deeply so that something you felt like something happened as you described on these lands in your home but you didn't really know right as you just described it wasn't until you were in your 20s that you learned about residential schools right yeah no like i was mentioning you know i never ever heard about the residential school until i'm 23 i grew up in an environment that had been traumatized for the collectively for the last 100 years and no one ever ever spoke of it you know and then when I think about it, I saw all of the behaviors, I saw all the coping mechanisms, the alcohol to repress the feelings, get rid of the get rid of their memories. I saw all of those behaviors, but no one ever told me about it. You know, you could sense something was on in the air, but you just couldn't put a finger on it. You couldn't you couldn't name it. Can you recall learning about it for the first time? Yes, and I was just like uh, I was un- I was I was surprised i was just like what and i was like when did this happen because automatically you know you think about your grandparents right you know you you love your grandmother you love your grandfather and then to think that somebody hurt them when they were young right and so naturally all of these emotions came storming up to the surface and i was just like of course i got angry about it and you know when i would talk about it when i would try to tell people about it you know because it involved the the church right it involved the the nuns the priests the janitors the supervisors all of them the night watchmen all of them you know because it involved them you know i said this is what the church did to our people this is what happened to our people and then i would always get the same response well they wouldn't do that you know the that's the church they wouldn't do that and what we've known now is that you know prime minister harper he apologized we're sorry for the physical abuse the emotional abuse the sexual abuse it was estimated that three out of every four children were sexually abused in those schools so you can just imagine the trauma that was existent in that community that indian reserve for the last hundred years how does a how does a community continue to walk with all of that unexpressed unacknowledged trauma who actually told you about residential schools or where did you learn about it i can't even remember it wasn't until 1988 that the charges were first brought towards the the government and the church 
1988, that was the first time anybody ever brought charges to, towards them and, you know, uh, brought them to court about it. So you can just imagine that's, that's, that's over a hundred years of this process. And finally somebody brings it out and, you know, so, so I, I can't remember who told me or where I heard it from, but I remember being so emotional about it. And when we think about it, you know, like this was legislated stuff. So when we think about it, why was, so, you know, if, if Prime Minister Harper apologized in 2008, where was this information in the university textbooks in 1980, in 1950, in 1940? Where was all of this truth that he is apologizing for, i.e. the truth and reconciliation? Where was all this truth in their institutions? Can you describe some of the documents that you brought into the workshop showing how textbooks depicted First Nations people in Canada? My people were always portrayed in a negative sense within the media, within the education. When I think about the the greater society of canada they knew nothing of us right our history our real history was never you know in their textbooks in their textbooks you know that one paragraph their university textbooks it said oh we taught the indians how to farm we taught them how to speak english all of the fluffy stuff right but where was all of this trauma that that was experienced by our people on this on this land in canada where you know and when i look at about how we were depicted in the media you know we're always uh, everybody's heard of oka you know the oka crisis in the 90s where the mohawks they were protesting and there was a they had to bring in the canadian army um uh, to to settle the situation and what happened was the golf course there, it was a golf course they kept wanting to expand their operations and they kept impeding onto the mohawk reservations and the mohawks are getting tired of it they're like you know what the, the government's not going to help us the police aren't going to help us they just kept expanding their operations and eventually they wanted to, the golf course wanted to start digging up the cemetery so they wanted to start digging up their their ancestors and that's when the mohawks there said no 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 this isn't going to happen we're going to we got to do something so they started protesting they started you know blockading and stuff like that and you know i remember that on the news vividly as a young person yeah and and the media they would never tell you the real history of why they were uh, why they why the mohawks were protesting what they were is like oh you know the mohawks are protesting they're blockading the bridge our citizens can't get home to their children to feed their children for dinner it's it's just a nuisance blah 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 blah. so in in a sense they were they were continuing that process of socialization where there's something wrong with this demographic and you know they're being unreasonable and disorderly and all of that stuff as a young person how did learning about residential schools and then continuing on your life journey how did it impact you personally and also in your family and community personally um i even though i heard about it at age 23 you know by that time i was already conditioned i was all my mind was already hardwired i already had my my go-to behaviors which were which were practically sabotaging behaviors, right? So, you know, because of the history of our people, um, you know, because of all the bullying and the shaming and all of those sort of abuses within these residential schools, unfortunately, they found their way back to the Indian Reserve. And unfortunately, there's this dynamic where, you know, in order to empower ourselves, we have to disempower others, right? And I was the product of that disempowering. And so needless to say, my self-esteem was shot at age seven. Like it was, it, my self-esteem was gone. And I, I didn't intellectually have this conversation with myself. I just, I just sort of felt, I just felt it, right? And so needless to say, when as soon as 
age 13, as soon as, you know, I, I, I rebelled, I was like, okay, you know, the older kids would, you know, they'd be like, hey, Brad, you want to have a drink? You want to have a drink? And I'm just like, sure. I just wanted to fit in. Right? I want to feel good about myself. So naturally, you know, I said, sure, I will. And then next thing you know, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I was a, I was a heavy, heavy drinker, but I used that as my coping mechanism because I felt so not so great about myself. And needless to say, so that became, I learned how to deal with life at a young age. Nobody told me the truth about what happened to our people. I just took my childhood experiences. I took it personally. You know, I, I, because nobody was uh, protecting me, I felt that I was in, in, on that reserve. I felt I was unwanted. I felt like I was unloved and therefore I was unworthy. And when a child solidifies that concrete foundation within the pit of his stomach that you know he's unwanted unloved and unworthy that becomes his identity and that out of out of that deepest deepest sense of self you know i project all of my thoughts out of all of my feelings and therefore all of my behaviors according to that unacknowledged compromised self-identity that i had unknowingly created for myself internalized oppression yeah that's a great point about internalized oppression um you know like when i would go to town like when we would go into the nearest communities to to go shopping or go get our foods or supplies, I felt the racism within Canada. I felt the racism. I and in Canada, there's there's always these terms: all oh, those Indians are drunks, all oh, those Indians are lazy, all oh, those Indians get everything for free. All of those stereotypes. That's the only information that Canadian society had about my people. There was no truth in their education books that could have perhaps um, relieved them of some frustration towards our people. When is the very first time that you became aware of race? Wow. Um, I would have to say probably around seven or eight. And the reason why I say that is because I, 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 you can feel energy, right? Mm-hmm. And you can feel the resentment and the frustration that the others have of you, right? So that's when I started to feel that things were different. I was always hear all of these stereotypes that, you know, those, they're drunks, they're lazy, they get everything for free. And then when I would go home back to my community, I would, on welfare day, I would see all of the evidence. You know, as soon as we got our money from the, you know, our welfare from the government, you know, that one day out of the month, I would see, you know, soon, soon, soon to follow would be the drinking. And after that, the domestic disputes and all of that stuff. So naturally, not only am I hearing that my people are, they have a problem with alcohol, they have a problem with unemployment. But now when I wake up on welfare day, I would see all of the evidence. And because nobody, because of the legacy of residential school and the trauma that was existent, nobody ever, ever talked about what happened to our people. Nobody ever told me, Brad, sit down. I want to tell you something. You know why, you know why you're seeing what you're seeing? Because over 150 years, the, the government has forced us to go to these residential schools and it has traumatized and it has, it has broken these little children's spirit. And as a result, this is why things are the way they are in our communities. So naturally, because nobody is helping me process all of this negative information, you know, so now I'm starting to internalize this racism. So now I'm starting to believe this racism. Then they call it internalized racism. And how does that express itself? So here I am, 25 years old in a college here in Vancouver. And 
it was a first, it was a political science class, and the lady says, "Are there any First Nations people in here?" And I was the only one. I quickly covered up my head. Um, I did not, not want anybody to see me. And then these two gentlemen in front of me, good guys, I've known them for two semesters by then. And they say, "Aren't you First Nations?" And I remember instinctively, I just says, "No, no, I'm Mexican." Right. So it was anything but Indian in Canada. Meanwhile, up to that point, I never met any Mexican. I just knew that they they kind of looked like us. So you know, if I could just say say I was something else other than Indian. So that's how that internalized racism, you know, sort of helped create that concrete foundation and right in the belly of my stomach that you know that governs all of my thoughts, governs all of my feelings, therefore governs all of my behaviors in any social experience. Thank you for sharing that. I know it is probably not easy, but I wholeheartedly believe that speaking your truth can be very powerful for others listening who many whom may have had very similar experiences. I know for me myself, I have due to our deep insidious permeating history of racism in the United States and Canada. What was the journey from that moment to where you are now? You're traveling around the world really to facilitate your own workshop, Fire Across the Land, Strengthening Community Connections, Impacts of Residential School and Colonization Workshop. What was the journey from that moment to what you're doing now? You know, I always tell, uh, I work with Aboriginal youth up here in Vancouver, and, you know, they're, they're sitting in front of me, they want to change their lives, right? And I always tell them about my personal history, you know, about... You know, even though at 23 years old, even though I now knew better, that didn't necessarily mean that I was going to do better. It wasn't until I was about 35 years old, 12 years later, after I found out the truth of what happened to my people, it's that things started to change. And, you know, when I think about it, sitting in that, that, that college classroom and telling people that I'm not Indian and how things progressed to where I am today, you know, I sort of, you know, when you're when your self-esteem is shot at age seven or whatever you kind of bumble through life you know you choose the path of least resistance maximum reward with minimal effort you try to stay out of the spotlight as much as you can and that's sort of how i conducted my life you know i took i took um jobs that probably weren't going to help me grow as an individual but they would just help get get the bills paid and eventually i found myself in um, a wellness college and by that point, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really interested. I just found it. It fell in my lap. Next thing you know, I found out the, you know, the path of least resistance. I would get funding for it. They would pay for all of my expenses for the month, for the next year or so. And so I took that path. And then that path led me to another job where I was going to work as a residential school survivors or counselor. And then, you know, I still hadn't really looked at myself right i was just kind of going through the motions i was getting the credentials but now i'm you know i'm starting to but i still wasn't looking at myself and then it wasn't until i came across this um this workshop that i that i that I, it's an interactive workshop and it was created by this lady named jan derrick and she had taught another gentleman uh rod jeffries and he taught us so it was a train the trainers and I, I watched this workshop, and by that point, still, it, it didn't hit me yet, right? It never sunk in yet. And then all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden, my, my friend, 
within the workshop he says oh hey brad you know that that workshop that we learned over on the vancouver island he goes i'm gonna go teach it to some elementary school you want to come along and by that point you know i'm still not invested in it yet but then he says uh he says i says or are we gonna get paid for it and then he goes yeah they're gonna it's, they're gonna count that as a paid day so i was like sure i'm in and then all of a sudden I started to gravitate towards this workshop and eventually somebody asked me, says, you know, Brad, we're looking for a residential school um, to talk about it. And then do you know anybody? And I'm like me. And then, you know, I just jumped on it right away. Right. And I froze on my very first workshop because, you know, like I said, my self-esteem was shot. I didn't think too, too highly of myself. And I froze on my very first workshop. But I, then I was sort of drawn to this type of work. And then I was like, okay, well, what's the worst thing that can happen to me? I could freeze and then I would not know anything at all. And so eventually I just said, okay, what? how am I going to address this? Okay, I'm going to buy a computer. I'm going to buy a PowerPoint. I'm going to buy a Microsoft Office. And that way I'll never forget anything. So that's how I sort of progressed in this. And it wasn't until I started working on these workshops and then, you know, um, experiencing the looks on people's faces as they started to connect the dots of their personal lives. And then as a result, I started to connect my own dots. So I started to learn more and more about myself and how our people's history affected every piece of my life, every social experience that I've ever had was directly influenced by that, you know, compromised self-esteem, all of this trauma and all of this unacknowledged trauma. So it, so now that I'm doing these workshops, I'm starting to learn more and more about myself and I'm starting to understand the impact that this information would have had a huge impact if somebody would have told me at age eight, at age nine, they, they, they would have said, Brad, this isn't about you. This isn't that you're unwanted in, in, your, in your home, community, family, whatever. It isn't that you're unloved. It's just that, you're, it's, just that it's, it's about a people that were hurting. It's about a people that had survived unspeakable trauma. Now that I'm doing these workshops, I do it with this in the back of my mind. I do it with the sole intentions that I want to educate people so that, that the energy that they exhibit towards First Nations children, that they, even though those First Nations children may not be aware of their people's history, at least those service providers are. And that can make a huge difference um, in the formulation of those children's identities. In, in, in a nutshell, that's sort of been the transformation uh, from telling, that, telling those individuals that, no, I'm not Indian, I'm Mexican, and to where I am today, where, you know what, this happened to me, I accept that, and now I need to move beyond that. It, it, it set me up for a life of whatever you want to call it, misery, whatever. But now I know the truth. And the truth is that, you know, my people have been fighting for the last two, three, four hundred years. So that said something about my people's strength, that resilience about my people. So that's where I'm coming from now is that I'm so proud to be First Nations because this is who we are. And I want to I want to tell our children this is who we are. So, you know, despite what society may try to project onto those little children's minds i want to what i always say in my workshop is i want my mind as a little boy my mind was pummeled by the negative information about what it meant to be indian so right now i want to pummel those children's minds with the truth about who they're who they really are wow as i've described to you before i feel a really deep connection and kinship 
to your story, although it's completely, we have completely different life journeys. But just in terms of me discovering my mother's side of the family's history, dealing with oppression and segregation as Black people in the United States, and how I was liberated, it was definitely a struggle, as you described. There was a long-standing struggle within myself, but finding out that story really liberated me, and I had to do a lot of hard work, and I'm still working on it, but in order to heal or to begin to heal. Right. As you were speaking, I just wanted to, you know, when you're saying, you know, to heal, right? And, you know, for me, as you were saying that, to, to, to heal, it, it, and this is just my, 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 the way I choose to think, right? So when I say heal, I'm just like, you know what, that seems like I'm, I'm, I'm behind the eight ball in some way, right? I'm less than, right? Um, so I prefer, as you were saying that, I was like, you know what, I think the word is to make whole again. Mm. And I, it just feels better, you know what I mean? For myself, personally, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the word, but I'm just saying for my, myself, it's like, it feels, it feels better for me to, to think of it as in terms of I just need to make myself whole again. Language is power, so I yes, absolutely. you on that. I, I, I got to be careful with this because for myself, I just choose, like, the way I see that word, I'm just like, it makes me feel like I'm less than, that I'm, I'm hurting or something like that, right? But meanwhile, I'm striving. So if I were to change the language just a little bit, just tweak it a little bit to make whole again. And that feels a lot better, right? That's nice. Something that popped into my head earlier as you were speaking, talking about your experience going through school, is that I know for myself, the discrimination, the bullying, the constant stares and snickers, all of that, I now know as an adult, I even knew, you know, as I was getting older, like in my 20s, that I lost out on some learning, some crucial learning because my mind was in survival mode. I was, right. not, I was not fully present to receive the lessons, to receive the information. And I truly wholeheartedly believe that I was robbed of some of my educational experience because of racism and discrimination. Yeah, you know, you make a good point about when you're in survival mode emotionally and mentally and sometimes physically, the, the information that you take in is always compromised. And, you know, like when we think about it, as a result, you know, you still have to be accountable for what you take in. So now, you know, they're called tests, right? right. And then perhaps you don't do so well on the test because you're not, you're not fully present because you're in survival mode emotionally and mentally and you're watching out for the, you're gauging the environment in terms of moods and emotions. And so you missed out on important information. So, so it's interesting when you mention that, it's just like, okay, well, that, that sort of survival mechanism is actually causing me to perform less on my tests. And then, you know, and that, that, that three out of 10 or five out of 10 or seven out of 10, they actually start to compound on one another. Now I start to, now I'm starting to get the results, right? I'm starting to get bad results on my tests. Mm -hmm. So now that you, you know, now that's, now I have evidence of what I'm hearing that, you know, society says that I'm less than, well, now my results are showing it. So unconsciously it's, it's kind of solidifying that already compromised foundation that I've created for myself. And I'm not even aware of it, right? That dynamic, those invisible forces that, that create who you are and you're not even aware of it. Absolutely. In addition to workshops in Canada and the United States, 
with municipal, state, federal organizations. What is something that you do for yourself to come back to being whole as you describe it? What I do is like I have, you know, certain, you know, obviously I'm involved in my culture. And but what I usually do in the morning is I like to meditate, you know, whether that's meditating by keeping quiet or but my preference is meditating while looking into a candle. And I just love to look into a a candle and sort of think about life, right? And think about my connection to everything and how one little ripple has an effect on the whole pond, right? And so that's how I bring myself back as I try try my best to take care of all of those four quadrants of my life, you know, my my emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical. I try my best. Um, But in terms of, uh, to go back to one other question you said about and I don't think I even addressed it or answered it, but you were talking about some of the service providers. And in my workshop, I've been doing some with the Law Society here in British Columbia. And what happens is before the lawyers, the new lawyers take their bar exam, they have to take this thing called the PLTC. And I just found out that we've probably done about 700 new lawyers or law students and i can just i'm just excited to see the impact that that will have in the next 10 or 15 years or you know what i mean i can't even Um, imagine because this being a lawyer being any type of public servant having a solid truthful understanding of the truth of our history our interconnected history is paramount and oftentimes that is not provided so this is huge this is colossal yeah and in the workshop what i usually say is you know what has been the extent of your knowledge of aboriginal people in canada to this point and i tell them it's usually that one paragraph in your university textbooks uh we taught them how to farm we taught them how to speak english there's one gentleman at the break he comes up to me and he's he's a prominent individual within one of these institutions i'm not going to get into which or what this or that but he's a prominent individual within a prominent institution and he comes up to me at the break and he goes you know what brad i'm a little embarrassed that you know i i kind of this is all that I knew. And, you know, so when I think about that, we have the prominent institution making decisions about a demographic that they don't fully understand. And I was just like, you know what, that's, that's powerful. You know, there was no discrimination, the, the lack of information that was exposed about my people throughout the last 200 years of Canada, it discriminated against nobody. Everybody got the same information, which is nothing. So when we think about a society, you know, a society, you know, they don't know much of us. The only information that they were exposed to was through stereotypes, you know, and that's what that that created our identity for them that, you know, that that formulated their thoughts and behaviors towards us. So it's 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 kind of exciting to 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 think about the possible impact that we can be having with these sort of uh, these sort of. interactive workshops in the next 20 years and to say that you know i've probably done you know it's been lawyers it's been you know it's been law students it's been city halls it's been teachers a lot of teachers uh across across british columbia we've done a lot of workshops for teachers as well as a student population so you know i'd have to say we're probably close to about you know it's eight to ten thousand participants within these workshops that's amazing 
Yeah, it's, is the makeup of your workshops pretty diverse? Because Vancouver is a very multicultural city, there's a lot of different individuals from different countries coming in. And what I've noticed was, you know, um, when I do the workshop, uh, especially with the city of Vancouver, a lot of individuals come up to me and they, they say, you know what, this is exactly what happened to us in my country. This is what they did to us. And this one individual, before she could say anything else, I said, okay, before you say anything else, what did they say about you guys? What mm -hmm. were the, some of the things that they said? And then she goes, oh, they just told us we were all alcoholics. And I was like, wow, that's exactly what they said about us. That's exactly what they said about, you know, other demographics, uh, different countries. And so now we can see, but you can see psychological colonization and how impactful, you know, once you get the oppressed to start believing that they are oppressed, right? And then you can, uh, they can take their, their role, oppressed and oppressor, and then it allows the, the wheel of oppression to continue, continue again unknowingly. I also am a workshop coordinator. I teach the civil rights movement and draw a bridge from the past to the present and anti-racism training. And there are some times where I get emotional. Of course, I have to keep it at bay because I'm professional. But I'm wondering, have you experienced those moments? Oh, absolutely. You know, especially in the beginning, like I mentioned, as I was doing these workshops, I was learning a lot about myself and unexpectedly, of course. And in the beginning, there would be somebody who would pose a question. And I was like, I never thought of that. Or else I would see something or hear something or feel something. And then it would bring me right back to my childhood and, you know, some of the, where some of the pain resides, those memories reside. And so, Needless to say, in the beginning, as I was doing these workshops, I was constantly getting triggered and re-triggered and all of these things. But what I've noticed is now that I've sort of told my story, you know, multiple times, amounts of times, I've probably done this workshop. I, I counted them and I'm probably about 190 times I've done this workshop. I'd like to say that I've kind of processed a lot of these emotions already. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, so, so I've talked about these emotions. I've talked about these memories. So now that they don't have as much of a power over me, you know, there's a saying, it says, you're only as sick as the secrets that you keep. And what that means is that it's saying that it's, it's healthy to talk about some of those secrets, if you will. My platform, Roots of the Spirit, the subtitle is Our Stories, Our Power. And you have me thinking about that in a different way because I think about it in terms of telling your story, kind of liberating you. But also, I concur with what you're saying. It takes the power from the negative and the trauma that lives inside of us if you do tell your story. There's a liberation to it, I'll say, for me. Absolutely. I, I totally 100% agree. You know, it's, you know, all of those, those repressed memories, you stuff them away, right? And they kind of, it's, it's not like they've they went away. It's just, they stay there and they kind of manifest into symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. But the more and more you speak about it, the more and more you process all of that emotion, that energy, you know, and now it doesn't have so much power over you. Now you've, now you've allowed it to take its natural course. For me personally, I can, I can still talk about the story, but it doesn't consume me anymore. So using the personal perspective as an analogy, where is Canada with this? I think, of course, it's a process. And I believe that, you know, it's, 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 it's like it's waking up. It's, it's starting to wake up. The awareness is starting to be there. And I think collectively, 
collectively it's it's shifting in the bigger cities you know what i mean because um in the smaller cities i can't really speak to that because i'm you know i, I don't spend too much time there but i can see i can feel a difference collectively in the bigger cities so to answer your question i think it's a good thing you know now we're all starting to understand it we're all starting to become aware become aware of the same information which used to be non-existent does the government apology have any meaning you know i always get that question in my workshops um they you know and the question of sincerity always comes up i always say that you know what I believe it wasn't a sincere apology. But anyways, that's just my opinion. But I'm curious. I need to hear more. I believe that that action that he took with the apology. Are you referring to Prime Minister Stephen Harper? Yes. So the apology came in 2008. And so as a result, was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission commissioned? Is that how it unfolded? Yes. Now uh, that's how the, it got the ball rolling, right? Even though he may or may not have been sincere. Right. But even though that but but now it gave a platform for Canada to start talking about it. Now it's now it's out on the table. Now nobody can deny it. And, you know, like when before that, like as a little boy, I was like, this is what the church done to our people, my grandparents. But now it's it's coming right from his mouth. We're sorry for the physical abuse, the emotional abuse, the sexual abuse. And in Vancouver, the the individuals the mayor of vancouver you know they dubbed themselves the city of reconciliation and when i say that i say that with pride because they really have stood behind um their their initiative their directive because up to this point in the city of vancouver alone in my particular workshop we've probably trained i would have to say about 1700 city employees whether they're janitors lifeguards or whether they're city managers city planners city commissioners just all levels of employees they now have a better understanding of what happened to my people so you know like so what to answer your question was it was it was it good was it a good thing when he apologized and even though i believe that maybe sincerity was a, an issue but it allowed individuals to start talking about it you're so incredibly positive and you bring so much to this work. I'll ask personally, and this question will also be meaningful for our listeners, what can I do to make sure that this story is told, that it's told correctly, that we begin to acknowledge what has happened in Canada and the United States to First Nations people and the impact, the bridge to this moment in time from the past. How can I contribute to the powerful work that you're doing? You know, as you're talking about that, I don't think there is one hard and fast rule. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, I think that we're all sort of learning and sort of trying to understand ourselves. Um, but from my heart, I honestly believe that just becoming more and more aware, like having the, the drive and the want to become educated as to other people's experiences, I think that would be the first step is to, to, really, to really find within yourself, you know, the, the, the want to find out other people's experiences. And so needless to say, just to educate yourself, you know, there are so many resources online. There's the, in Canada, there's the Aboriginal Healing Foundation. There's the Truth and Reconciliation. There are a number of different um, resources online to, to get yourself become more educated. And 
speaking to your your listeners i'm sure there are a lot of resources within your listeners um, individual communities what kind of a future do i want to live in right what kind of a community do i want to raise my children in and sort of to make it personal like this is what i want so therefore what can i do in order to create that image of a community that i want my children to be in does that make sense so much sense and i appreciate you that's fantastic I worked at the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian for three years, and I was astounded at, actually I wasn't astounded, at how miseducated I was about First Nations in Canada and the United States. And I feel like, to echo what you're saying, in addition to learning, it's also I would charge people to unlearning. I think that is a topic that needs to be at the forefront Um, and the reason why i say that is my mind is conditioned for the last let's just say 40 plus years so it's conditioned to think as soon as i see a black cloud i instinctively go get my umbrella so in order for me to effectively start to change my conditioning i got to look at my you know i got to look at my they call it implicit bias right Mm-hmm. And it is a powerful thing. Like, even though I've been doing what I've been doing for the last seven or eight years, I'm surprised at how my mind just resorts back to the previous conditioning of where I think this hierarchical, you know, this everybody should play their role of what I've, what I've believed for the last 40 years, right? And so when we talk about unlearning, I think about, you know, we need to sort of talk about our our implicit bias, which is, you know, which which conditioned us for the last however long we've been on this earth. Have you engaged any of your family members and or nation in your training? The very first member of my, my family was my daughter. And this was probably about two or three years ago. So uh, I was really hesitant to involve any of my family members because it's deeply personal. Right. And um, the way when I told my story, I didn't want to sort of offend anybody or hurt anybody. Right. And so only my daughter and my mother has witnessed my 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 workshop so there's a there's a little bit of a hesitancy there for whatever reason right um and i have brought my workshop back to my community and it was a powerful one so needless to say i was i was very apprehensive i was very anxious and but it went it went so well you know like i understood that you know i owe a lot to my community and and I also understood that my community was hurting. And so it was necessary to sort of bring light as you know, bring light of my experience growing up in that community. So um, yes, you know, my, to date, my mother and my daughter have both witnessed my workshop and my community as well. This has been a really wonderful conversation yet painful to learn the truths of our history, but also how it impacted your nation, community, family, and you. I thank you for sharing your experiences. I'm so glad to learn about your work that is helping to grow our collective informed historical perspective. And also, I appreciate the way that you humanize the story and how it lives in minds, hearts, and bodies, and manifests itself in everyday life and experiences and people. So thank you for that. I know that your journey is also abundantly filled with so many beautiful memories of the past and present as well. So on that note, as we near the conclusion of our conversation, 
Can you describe to me one of your most vivid, fond memories of growing up in your nation? Fondest memories was playing street hockey underneath the underneath the streetlight till all hours of the day. That's what <laughs> we used to do. In the snow, we used to shovel it, and you know, we just play hockey underneath for all day, every day. Those are one of the most vivid and happiest memories that I've had on my in my childhood. That's so awesome. And yeah, it's just, you know, like growing up on a small Indian reserve, you know, we, us teenagers and young people, we used to just, you know, play and hang out and just talk. And there's nothing like humor. I just love our Indian humor. I, I need our Indian humor. And when we get together, when I get together with other individuals from other reserves, uh, they, everyone understands there's just nothing like Indian humor. And those are some of my best memories is the Indian humor and hockey. That's so awesome. Brad, what are the roots of your spirit? What are the roots of my spirit? The roots of my spirit, unfortunately, the last 500 years has been demoralizing, needless to say. But the 10,000-year roots of my spirit were very, very highly structured and very, very highly connected to everything around us. You know, Western science is starting to catch up and saying that everything is energy. Well, you know, our, our people kind of knew that a long, long time ago. We knew that we were connected. That's why we respected the animals. We respected, you know, the land. We respected our each other, you know. And so when I say, what are the roots of my spirit? The roots of my spirit, highly disciplined, highly, highly respectful, highly cooperative. And unfortunately, the last 500 years of my experience, my people's spirit has been, unfortunately, you know, recovering. But as we can see, you know, the spirit of our of our nation, of our people is starting to wake up, you know. Um, when we talk about spirit, that, that spirit's been around for 10,000 years, you know. I'm only a part of that. My human being, my human vessel is only a part of that, that 10,000 years. Eventually, I'll be gone in the next 60 years. And that doesn't mean, you know, I got to pass it on to my children. But guess what? My children are only going to be here for about 100 years. So after that, you know, the spirit's going to remain, but our human vessels will be gone. So having to say that our, our, our spirit had to, had to go into hiding for a while, you know, because it was physically threatened. And, you know, so our spirit had to go into hiding. We were forbidden to speak our language. We were forbidden to uh, sing our songs or dance our dances. But as we can see, our children are starting to sing our songs. Our children are starting to dance our dances. So you can see the spirit starting to wake up. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing to see is like, you know, when we think about spirit, that's where my spirit was. And that's, that's where that this is where it is. Thank you for sharing your beautiful truth. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. In the show notes, I'm going to put your contact information with your permission. Yes. But if you just want to throw it out there for any <clears throat> provider or anybody who would be interested in inviting you to facilitate a workshop in their respective organization or community. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, with the workshop, like I said, so many different demographics, people from different countries can relate to it. And what I always tell them that is that this is a highly interactive workshop. So that means everybody's going to participate in the beautiful 10,000 year society and the dismantling of that 10,000 year society. So they're going to experience the feelings of anger, fear, helplessness, powerlessness, shame, guilt. They're going to experience all that. And when I tell the participants, I say, you know what, this workshop, even though it is about my people's experience up in Canada, it really is about oppression. 
So even though the dates of our people's, the dates may be different, the details may be different, the methods may be different, even though all of those things may be different, it's those collective feelings that are the same. So that feelings between the First Nations person and a black person, we can relate to those feelings of powerlessness. We can relate to those feelings of fear. We can relate to those feelings of guilt or shame. Those are both of our feelings. And it's understanding those feelings that actually create our social conditions within our communities. That's what it's about, is about oppression. It's not just about my people. Brad, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for inviting me and uh, just keep up the great work. And, you know, um, it, it's a lifetime journey for not just us as individuals, but for our people's spirits. Your spirit and my spirit is just a small cog in the big wheel of our collective spirits. Truth be told. So.